and a very good morning. Let's bow our heads for a few seconds. Dear Father, I simply pray that your living word would come alive for us indeed this morning in this midst. Through your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll do something unusual. I'm going to start by quoting a book, and it's not the Bible. It's a book by uh, my wife's uh, hero, one of her heroes. Um, what's his name? Bruce Waldke. Anyways, um, it's on Genesis, but here's what he says. The theme of Genesis and its subordinate motifs are best understood in light of the whole Bible. So one must ask, what is the entirety of the Bible all about? Which is an excellent question. His answer is the following. The kingdom of God is a central tenet in the teachings of the Lord Jesus and plays an important role in Paul's teaching. Although the expression kingdom of God never occurs in the Old Testament and its equivalents are relatively rare and late, the concept informs the whole. The primary history, which traces Israel's history from the creation of the world to the fall of Israel, is all about what the New Testament calls the kingdom of God. So that's his answer. If there is one thing that summarizes all of the Bible, it's the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so it's not surprising that the Lord's Prayer, which we just heard, was Jesus' uh, Jesus' chance to sum up the answer to a very simple question, what should we pray about when we pray? And it makes sense that his answer, the Lord's Prayer, would be a microcosm of everything there is. In other words, that it would speak of the kingdom of God from beginning to end. May I have the next slide, please? This brings us back to last September. I gave a uh, sermon on the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it was Lord's Prayer Part 1. And that's an old slide. I just wanted to show it again because I have to set the context here. It's a quick rundown of what I talked about on that occasion in September. The first part of the Lord's Prayer is like a chiasm. It's like a mountain peak. It, an, a, a sequence of ideas unfolds and brings us to the top. And then we go down the mountain on the other side and a similar sequence of ideas unfolds as we go down on the right side. In such a way that if you look across the mountain, things match up. For example, we start with A. A is we are here on earth praying to our Father in heaven. And look what shows up on the other side of the mountain, on earth as it is in heaven. So we have earth and heaven. They seem to be a matching pair. Go up one floor, look at B. Hallowed be your name on the other side, D. Your will be done. And it's amazing because they're like mirror images. It doesn't say, hallowed be your name and done be your will, but no, your will be done. It's like a mirror image. I don't know if that was intentional, but it's quite striking. And then at the very top, towering over the entire edifice, overlooking everything and visible from every part, is the central statement, your kingdom come. And that is meant to be the central statement, the one that summarizes and captures everything about this mountain peak. And indeed, 
um, we see that on both sides of that central statement, you have the worship part, hallowed be your name, and you have the obedience part on the right side, your will be done. And those two together summarize very well what the kingdom of God looks like. Because the kingdom of God is the reign of God. And what does it look like when God reigns? Well, all are united in hallowing the Father's name and in doing his will. And that sums it all up. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it looks like when God reigns in Thank you. Testing, testing, yes. All right. Okay, so I said it would make sense that the Lord's Prayer as a whole would be about the kingdom of God. But then it seems like we've said it all, right? This kingdom of God is the central statement, the peak of the mountain here, summarized very neatly by worship and obedience. What else is there to be said about the kingdom of God? But the Lord's Prayer is not done yet because the reign, the kingdom of God is the reign of God. And the reign of God is a relationship with two parties. There is the monarch or the king who rules and he doesn't just rule. That's the rule over something. So there's another party made up of the subjects of the kingdom. Now, when we say that the kingdom is all about worship and obedience, well, that's what the subjects of the kingdom do. When God reigns indeed, they worship and they obey. But meanwhile, the king is there reigning. And what does he do? And that's what the Lord's Prayer Part 2 is all about. If you, if you think about it, Jesus asks us to pray for our daily bread. This is what the king, one of the things that the king does when he reigns, he supplies our needs. And then there's this next part about forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who uh, trespassed against us. So they're the atonement, the forgiveness, which is another thing that the king gracefully, uh, graciously provides for his subjects. And then you have, finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you have the themes here of protection and deliverance, which is another essential function of the king and that too describes what the kingdom of God looks like it's not just a matter of what the subjects do but what the king does meanwhile and that's what I would like to explore nowadays and that leads us to the next slide now what's fascinating is if you take the Lord's Prayer as a whole from beginning to end you seem to have a chiasm within a chiasm Look, look at the, uh, the one bottom left. That's the part you already know about. That's the chiasm I talked about in September. Up and down. But then you can take that as a whole and say, okay, that's the foot of my mountain. Then we go up the mountain. We have, give us this dear lady bread. And then presumably the central statement, we'll have to prove that one. The central statement of the entire structure of the Lord's Prayer 
And then we go down. And then we're into, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And finally, and perhaps controversially, we have the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I say controversial because uh, scholars have debated whether that is part of the Lord's Prayer. Does it belong there? It seems like the older manuscripts didn't have it. So it casts a little cloud of suspicion. But full disclosure, I'm very biased about this because if I didn't have it, my chiasm would fall apart. And I like my chiasm. Actually, if someone said to me, Colin, I have incontrovertible proof that this whole chiasm thing of yours is a figment of your own imagination. I would say, well, I have found it helpful regardless. And that's my comeback. I think it's hard to, hard to counter that. It has been helpful to me and you'll have to decide if it's helpful to you. I think it will be and that's what I have to offer to you today. But there are some scholars who say, yeah, it was in the initial uh, prayer as delivered by Jesus. And others like me would say, well, maybe not, but it doesn't mean it's not inspired. It's hard to imagine that God is not pleased with that conclusion to the prayer because generations of Christians for centuries around the world have prayed the Lord's Prayer in exactly those words. I'll give you two more reasons why I think the chiasm is, is, is valid. Um, well, one is that perhaps it makes sense that the peak is about forgiveness because when Jesus was done giving the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, he wasn't finished yet. He concluded the glory forever, amen. And then he went back on one idea out of the whole prayer. He said, for if you do not forgive those who trespass against you, the Father is not going to forgive you your trespasses. So he thought that of all the ideas he had just discussed, perhaps that one deserved to be revisited. As if Jesus said, look, you might forget half of what I said, but if there's one thing that is gonna ring in your ears when I'm done, it'll be that one. If there's only one thing you should remember, remember that one. So I think it makes sense that it's at the peak of the mountain. Here's another point in favor of the chiasm. Notice I quoted it from the NIV, and there's a reason. Because in the ESV, which we like, and also in our liturgy, because you'll see it for yourselves after I'm done and we recite together the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from evil. So which is it? Deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one? You might know vaguely that different Bible versions have it differently. What do uh, sco scholars say? I've read a number of commentaries and scholars seem to be agreed that the best translation, given the context, given the language, given everything they know about, is that it should be the evil one. So why don't all the Bible versions say the evil one? Well, uh, probably tradition plays into that. Tradition is stubborn. People have been saying it one way for the longest time. So translators are a little weary of playing with tradition and moving things around. So a lot of them have stuck with protect us from evil. 
but I'm going would protect us from the evil one. Because consensus of scholars, but also I find it flows wonderfully well with the concluding statement. Consider this, deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So there's a contrast that's being established between the evil one and you, Father, who we are praying to. Get this again. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. It's like we're saying, deliver us from the evil one because the kingdom, the power and the glory do not belong to the evil one, but to you, Father, God, forever and ever. So I just like the way it flows. It almost seems inspired. It's also very striking to me that if that translation is correct, which I think it is, it means, this might blow your minds, that Jesus in the Lord's Prayer specifically mentioned the evil one as a living, real personality to be contended with. And that's just one of many, many places throughout the Bible where Jesus acknowledges and confirms the existence of a nefarious spiritual realm uh, overlooked by the one we call Satan. And that really gives a, a different twist. I'm going to milk it for all it's worth, but you'll see it really brings a new, a new element to it. Um, just before we're done with that slide, go to level two. They match up. Well, sorry, go to level one. Level one is wonderful in how it matches up because on the left, it's all about the kingdom, right? Dominated, dominated by the peak, your kingdom come. On the right side, what do we have? Well, we go back to the kingdom theme. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. So it's wonderful that the Lord's Prayer starts with the kingdom and ends with the kingdom because it's all about the kingdom, isn't it? Go to level two now. Level two are, in the same way that worship and obedience were two wings of the one, uh, to the one idea of God reigning over his subjects, I would say that the two wings we have here, on the left, provision, the bread, and on the right, the protection and the deliverance, I would say are the two wings that sum up everything that God provides for us, his provision, what the king does for his subjects. I'm going to uh, really nail this one in the next few slides. So just remember that provision on the left and protection on the right, sum it all up. Next slide, please. All right, so my theme question is when the father's kingdom or the father's reign prevails, what does the king do? I'd like to start with Adam and Eve. Where's the king there? Uh, it's striking that God basically asked Adam and Eve to be king and queen over creation. Look at what he said. God said, let us make man in our image, etc. And let them have dominion over everything he had created. And he, he, gives a, he gives a list here, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It looks like he didn't hold back anything except, as you know, the tree of life. That was the one exception. Everything else 
was given to man, meaning man and woman, to have dominion over. And he did confirm, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, not just for the sake of filling the earth, but to better dominate over everything that had been created. Have dominion, dominate. What kind of dominion did God have in mind? Obviously, he wanted man to be representative of God's own reign. And as you know, Adam and Eve decided differently. But what did God, ha God have in mind? We have a little uh, glimpse of it in verse 15. Because the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Well, to dominate on the garden like everything else. But he spelled it out this way, to work it and to keep it. Now, to work is the Hebrew, look at the bottom there, Hebrew abad, meaning to work, to serve. And to keep, the second thing is the Hebrew shamar, meaning to keep, to watch, to preserve. It's interesting, the, there's a little pun here, because to work is to serve, that's one meaning. And to keep is to preserve, preservation. Let's unpack that some more next slide okay working the soil that's abad in hebrew that's the provision bringing in all that is good in other words giving the soil what it needs to be fruitful you want your soil to produce you till it you water it you fertilize it and in exchange the soil honors its farmer by doing his will by producing good fruit I always like creative synonyms, so I came up with servicing, servicing the soil. And there is a very interesting confirmation of that idea in the Gospels. Actually, Jesus gave a parable about the fig tree. The man came seeking fruit on the fig tree and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now I have come seeking fruit, I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And uh, the vine dresser said, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, that's the tilling of the ground, and put on manure. This is what the farmer does. Manure is fertilizing. So you have two out of three there. The watering is not mentioned. Then. If it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Next slide. Now we go to keeping the soil. That's Hebrew word shamar. And that's a protection. The protection is not bringing in the good, but keeping out the bad. Equally important, isn't it? Preserving the soil from any enemy that would ruin the farmer's hard work. The farmer might watch over the soil by night by sleeping nearby and keeping one eye open and one ear open. My synonym would be guarding. We have two examples of the same Hebrew word shamar and see how it is used. In Genesis 3, just a little later in, in, in Genesis, he drove out the man out of the Garden of Eden. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to shamar, the way to the tree of life, to guard. It's literally translated to guard. That's my favorite synonym. 
Genesis 4, just one uh, chapter later, the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's shamar? Am I my brother's keeper? Or you might say, am I my brother's guardian? Have I been appointed to guard over the safety of my brother? And there's something else too. I'm going to the gospels again. Jesus says something surprisingly similar to this whole idea. Another parable, kingdom of heaven, maybe compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. He did the work of bringing in the good in the field, but then he didn't sleep nearby with an open eye and an open ear, apparently, because while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So the plants came up and bore grain, but the weeds appeared also. The servants said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? He said, an enemy has done this. And later, when he explains the parables, he says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, which I find very interesting because we're not done with the devil yet. All right. So we have a clue that when God's put Adam in the garden to work and keep the soil. He was expressing his will that Adam would provide the two wings, the provision and the protection. And there's more on that theme. It's amazing that it runs through the entire Bible, actually, not just Genesis. Next slide, please. King David. Well, King David was certainly a type of Jesus. And Jesus was called the son of David for a reason. David, in Psalm 23, he reflected on what it meant for God to be his shepherd. He was himself a shepherd. So when he described in Psalm 23 all that the Lord did for him, he expressed it in the language of a shepherd because he knew as a shepherd what he did for his flock, the sheep. He put it in these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's the provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures, food. He leads me beside still waters, drink. That's another theme we'll see more of, food and drink. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then if you keep reading in Psalm 23, it shifts over to the other wing, the protection, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because, you know, to go from a green pasture to perhaps another green pasture, sometimes you had to take a shortcut through some pretty shady areas, some narrow gorges, perhaps, with walls pressing on both sides, the kinds of places where wild animals might lie in wait and devastate the flock the valley of the shadow of death, signs of imp impending death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They terrify me, no, they comfort me. The shepherd's staff was a symbol of his authority, but look what it does. It doesn't beat up the flock. Yeah, you can use it to nudge the sheep if they get, if they stray a little bit. 
you want to bring them back in the fold so they will all end up in the one place. And also for protecting them by driving predators away. So that's for King David, the theme. Actually, we're not done with David. Next slide. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep. There's that word again. Keep. What does he mean by keep? That's just confirmation of what I've already told you. Let's hear David say it in his own words. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. The theme of deliverance. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And then it talks about Goliath. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. So keeping is delivering, protecting. Third and last. Next slide. King Jesus, the ultimate example. So what does King Jesus do for us? He provides, and that makes him a special kind of leader. It makes him a shepherd who provides and protects. And let's hear it from his own mouth. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant pastures, abundant provision. And then if you keep reading, he does like David in Psalm 23. He transitions into the protection. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd puts himself in harm's way. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I put myself in harm's way. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. <clears throat> All right, next slide, please. Now let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, not surprisingly, has provision and protection. Provision is in these words, give us this day our daily bread. What kind of bread is that? Because it already says this day. So this day, our daily bread, it sounds a bit like an oxymoron. Actually, there's more to it. If you look at the Greek for daily bread, because you want to know what kind of bread that is, the Greek is epiusios. Now there's a problem because in all of ancient literature, all of ancient literature, this we know of only two places where this word ever shows up. And it's all in the Bible. It's in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and then in Luke. And that leaves us a little miffed because linguists figure out a lot of the meanings of words by seeing how they're used elsewhere but now they don't have that luxury so what kind of bread is that and i did some research and oh, you can do your own research 
uh, I said to myself, I can do this. This is complicated, but I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And I had to throw the towel. My heart was starting to spin, and I said, maybe I could use my time better. And then I said, well, Jesus really comes to the rescue here because Jesus tells us what is the bread that we should desire. He says it elsewhere. And for me, that's all I need to know. What kind of bread should we desire? What is this daily bread? Matthew 4 is, is, is foundational here. The tempter came and said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a very important word here. It's the word alone. God didn't say man shall not live by bread. He said man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus himself acknowledges our terrestrial needs. We are allowed to pray for that. Jesus himself knew we needed the bread that we know. The bread, uh, we have a loaf of it somewhere here. But not by bread alone, not that bread anyways, exclusively, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, that too is meant to be our daily bread because it makes us live as much as the uh, perishable bread uh, sustains our life. And there's a nice, very beautiful comparison here. Our bread is perishable. And it does sustain our life, but it sustains a perishable life. Some 70 odd years. But the bread that God gives us, the word, uh, the, everything that comes out of the mouth of God blossoms into eternal life. Imperishable food for imperishable life. John 6 is the other place where Jesus says, what is the bread that we should desire? He says, truly, truly, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He means the manna. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Here's another kind of bread that comes from heaven. For the bread of God, the bread that comes from heaven, is he who comes down from heaven. We'll find out who that is. And gives life to the world. And people very wisely said to Jesus, please, sir, give us this bread always. And that was an inspired request i believe it was a good request jesus continued your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died you know what happened to uh, jesus said not jesus god said to the israelites on friday collect manna for two days i don't want you to collect any manna on saturday and some stubborn israelites collected on friday extra manna you know what happened to that manna it rotted and started stinking, reminding us that this manna was very perishable food. And it sustained perishable life. And these Israelites eventually all died in the desert. But verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it, eat of it, and not die. I, he says who now? He says it's referring to me. I'm the one who came down from heaven. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the answer basically is the bread that we should desire is Jesus himself. 
He calls himself the bread from heaven. Besides, of course, the terrestrial bread. How about Matthew 4? Interesting that Matthew 4 kind, kind of confirms that. Because he says we should also live from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, guess what is one of the titles of Jesus? The word of God. That is one of the titles that Jesus gives himself. So it all points to Jesus, isn't, doesn't it? Even the word proceeding from the mouth of God points to Jesus, the word of God, because Jesus said, everything I say is everything I've heard from my Father. That I say, no more, no less. Okay, next, Lord's Prayer. <gasps> Shock. I'm sorry, I had no idea time was flying to such an extent. Protection. Okay. Well, that, that, that's a tough one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, let's lay a few foundations. God never tempts anyone. It's very clear in James. Uh, notice the prayer doesn't say, don't tempt us. The prayer says, do not lead us into temptation. And that's a critical difference. It wouldn't make sense to say, don't tempt us, because God doesn't do that ever. James 1.13, let no one say I'm being tempted by God. God himself tempts no one. Next bullet point, the evil one. He's the one who tempts, not God. Matthew 13 says, when anyone hears the word, does not understand it, what's happening? Well, it's the evil one who is snatching away what's been sown in his heart. Next bullet, the whole world is under the influence of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and he can't help it. As much as God will not tempt the evil one, will not do anything else. It says here, there is no truth in him, John 8, 44. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. Next slide. Okay. The devil tempts, but God allows the devil to tempt. The devil cannot do anything that God doesn't allow. This is where I'm going to take a few shortcuts. In Job, it's very clear. God puts limits. Do this, but no further. God has complete control over the devil. He uses him and allows him for a time, for now, to do a work of temptation. <clears throat> so in that sense, God has, in that sense, God has led Adam and Eve into temptation. Now, I think the word lead is a little too strong. It's not like God took Adam and Eve and walked them to the serpent and said, I want to introduce someone to you. That's kind of the image of leading, which I think goes too far. And, and the Pope some time ago said, uh, uh, there, there's problems with that sentence. He proposed something else. And um, I don't know if I disagree. I could not even tell you exactly what he said. But I'm saying I have no problem whatsoever, uh, except that it's a little too strong. Leading says too much. But here, French comes to the rescue because French 
16, ne nous soumet pas à la tentation, which means do not, do not subject us to temptation. And I think that captures it just right. So I like the French. I think the English goes a little too far. But God is responsible for temptation in a sense. He allows it, but he's not guilty of it. And that's a huge difference. So the prayer says, lead us not into temptation. When we are called by God to become his children, God does the opposite of leading us into temptation. He delivers us from the evil one. And then we have three wonderful verses I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keeping. Remember that word, a protection. Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Guard is also a word I like. And finally, 1 John, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So here we have protection, word for word. Next slide. I'm going to skip that one, except to say that we were delivered, but we need continued protection. And we might take that for granted. It is by the grace of God and by his continued protection that we are continually de delivered from the evil one. Because he is compared to a roaring lion prowling around and seeking someone to devour. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer that this would not happen, that we would continue to be delivered because on our own we are no match. Next slide. I'm not sure why I wanted to come back to that. Forgive us our debts. Yes, I wanted to conclude with that. How does that sum it all up? Forgiveness would sum up the whole thing if it included provision and protection, and it does. Next slide. Well, first of all, what is the means of God's forgiveness? It's the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Well, in John 6, Jesus said very clearly, the means of forgiveness, my broken body and shed blood, are food. He says the flesh that you eat and the blood that you drink. If you don't, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, I will raise him up. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. That's as clear as you can get it. The forgiveness of God is food. It is a central part of his provision for us. Also, the other wing, the protection. Well, Broken body and shed blood protects us from our mortal enemies, the foremost of which is death. And we have three wonderful, very clear verses that says, who he gave, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. So his giving of himself for our sins is a deliverance from the present evil age. Colossians, he's delivered, delivered us from the domain of darkness. How? The forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews is even more wonderful. It says that through the death of Jesus, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Therefore, he destroyed death itself. And he delivered all those who were 
enslaved by the fear of death. So you have it there, delivered, 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 all in connection with the forgiveness of sins. So conclusion, next slide. There isn't a next slide, that's where I conclude. I believe there is all kinds of structure in the Word of God, and I think that I discern very profound structure in the Lord's Prayer, and what it does for me is it puts at the top the forgiveness of God, and I think I've demonstrated this forgiveness sums it all up. It's the one thing you would say if there was one thing to say, because it expresses how God provides for us. He says it is food and drink but it also delivers us from all of our mortal enemies. And I thought to myself, how wonderful that we have communion today. Because it ties in beautifully, because it's a reenactment of what Jesus did for us. And it's a memorial of all the wonderful ways that God provides for us spiritually. So God does things in a wonderful way. Thank you, sorry for going overboard. I think, hope it was uh, palatable. Have a great Sunday. Thank you, Colin. You know, when 